Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Jirgelecter. Sakula Ijai. Food. Change. We are. Welcome to the Slow Food Youth Network Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the SFIN podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti and I'm the SFIN Global Community and Project Manager. Today we are going to listen to the last episode dedicated to the slow food event Terra Madre and we are exploring our final ecosystem, the urban lands. Our question for today is, what is the role of gastronomy in promoting local biodiversity? The special host of this episode is Ana Garcia Castellanos, who already helped us in the past by translating and dubbing a lot of episodes from Spanish to English. So thank you so much, Ana, for that. Uh, Ana is working as a chef in a local food restaurant in Minnesota. She's from Guatemala and she's a digital activist for land rights and access to healthy diets. Ana will take us on a journey to Guatemala, Minnesota and Italy. She will present to us a model of a restaurant based on ingredients from a local farm. She will take us into a conversation with the indigenous food lab. And finally, we will find out how ethnobotanics and traditional knowledge can preserve biodiversity. A super interesting episode and full of content. Anna, I leave you the word. Hi, my name is Ana Garcia, and for this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with some game changers in the food industry around different urban lands worldwide. Firstly, we will be talking with Lola, a Guatemalan who owns an organic food restaurant in Guatemala City called El Mercadito de Lola, which she feeds from her regenerative agriculture farm on the southern coast Guatemala. Sustainably and ethically, the vision of Lola's market is to provide healthy food. Secondly, let's move to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we will be talking with Armando Medinaceli from the Indigenous Food Lab. With three words, decolonizing the kitchen, this lab has the mission of bringing back native gastronomy to the rest of the population in the city. Armando, the director of the Indigenous Food Systems Program, will tell us the many areas that the lab is involved in. The food, paired with education, is what matters if we want better urban areas and rural areas for everyone. And last but not least, we will have a fantastic conversation with Andrea Pieroni in Italy. Pieroni is the Dean of the University of Gastronomic Science in Polenzo, Italy. He will drive us to the view of food through the lens of ethnobotany and the importance of traditional knowledge. Today we have the opportunity to talk with Lola from El Mercadito de Lola, a Guatemala City's restaurant. So, okay, Lola, tell us a little bit about the area where your farm is located. 
We know that your farm, full of biodiversity, is surrounded by a harmful monoculture, as it is the planting of sugarcane. Tell us, how does this affect the community? There is so much to talk about. I have more than 30 years living near this area. I had the opportunity to do a part of my studies here, and I fell in love with the area, when it was not really an agricultural area, even with sugarcane. There were plots where we had different crops and lived it on lemon, paste, papayas, etc. There was no road, no electricity, but the development came with the road, the electricity and the cane cultivation. I've been watching the growth of this monoculture for 30 years, and because of all the conditions that have arisen as a country, it affects us a lot, because even psychologically the community already lives economically just for this, six months of work. The soil is one of the best soils in Guatemala, one of the best soils in the world, it is volcanic, and we have water, so there are many conditions for this area to be exquisite and tremendously sustainable in order to provide food for many Guatemalans. That's amazing, Lola, thank you. You were living there, so you watch all of this, and now you told me that you started making dairy products in a conventional and industrial way, right? So what made you change to a more sustainable and environmentally friendly method? Well, there are many things that really influenced. As you say, we started with an ordinary dairy farm. Uh, here there is a caloric stress, where we're not a dairy friendly area that can be sustainable to make a real efficiently dairy farms for the animals. So we started to have uh, the big wall and we had to understand that we had to change to see if we could have this dairy. But that change made us not only have cows and have dairy, uh, where we, we started to learn that we had to lower the caloric stress. So we started with all these silvopastoral systems and to understand that trees we're starting to do all these positive actions around what's happening. And when we realized that just planting a tree without having so much technology or anything and started to see what was happening around the tree, that was when we accelerated the process to 100% and we became regenerative. And that's now what we are, a regenerative farm. We're doing like an oasis. The niche of people who believe in these concepts is not yet clear. But we are always educating the final consumer to support us. There are thousands of regenerative farms that could be competitive and sustainable. For sure, for sure. That's so true. Like, there is no such a thing as saying we are going to be different or we are going to be just the only regenerative agriculture farm it's not a thing like that it's a thing to share the knowledge and so everybody can do it in the community and everybody can really start to copy the system which is going to be very good for everyone so how do you think this has influenced the community in western guatemala do you think there are efforts on the part of the community to copy this system Yeah, our biggest dream is to copy regenerative farms in Guatemala. I see a strong potential for it. We have to educate the end consumer, the one with the power, because our health def depends on the health of the land. When people are able to buy products that help their health and are not in an unfair competition for food, I believe that we will begin to see light. Guatemala is a country where we are fascinating bicarbonates. There is total freedom over the food sold on every corner. You find food, but I'm going to tell you that it does not give you health, 
however prices are accessible. And we, with the issue of healthy food, cannot have fair competition. I believe that the light will be seen when the consumer understands that what he or she puts in its mouth is what we are. And this is the health and what we're going to have, which is not to live longer, but to live with quality of life. Exactly. What are the challenges of maintaining a standard of good ecological practices in your restaurant, El Mercadito Alola in Guatemala City, in a country where there are really no regulations? There are many. Uh, we are blessed to be strong and we work as a family together. There's my husband, Edgar, and I here on the farm as producers, but one of our children is the one that works in the restaurant. It has not been easy. We have been in the market for five years. However, with the processes, it is not difficult at all to do them. More than that, we're giving health products. I think it is only a matter of the consumer knowing what they want. The difficult thing, I tell you, is not to get into the competitiveness of good management practices. We are already certified by the Ministry of Health, but the problem is that it is very expensive. However, our niche of people that we are managing to sell is a niche of people who have the economic capacity. Although our objective is not that niche of people, and we visualize and our desire is really that this food reaches all watermelons, not only the ones that have an, econ an economic capacity. Here among the farm, people come to learn what is really produced and that they don't take themselves for an international certification or anything, but they take their own experience. And that this experience is what convinces them to eat a product that really comes from farm to and from rural people like us. The publicity and everything that has been handled in Guatemala is a product that it is not even Guatemala. True, that is totally true. And what you say, like rather of thinking on certifications people can trust on the farm by seeing the farm by going there and having this connection and i think that is very powerful without a farm there is no restaurant right so how does el mercadito de lola utilize all the resources of the farm in the restaurant is the menu created based on what the farm has seasonally Or is it planted on the farm based on the requirements of the restaurant menu? Um, well, what happens is that the farm really produces from the products that you don't find in many places. I believe that there is the first benefit that the restaurant has the goat dairy and cow dairy, where the dairy in the end, the, even if it is uh, for little, always it is consumed in many products. The restaurant was strengthened in a dairy vegetarian system. We started in that sense, even though we have chicken, but we started out as the opposite of a regular restaurant that you can find in Guatemala. Uh, there are a lot of young people who are looking for this kind of restaurant, and that's where we started to see this strength. Uh, we first started with the farm, then we started with the store, and finally the restaurant, which is very small. Not all the ingredients are made by us, but I say 75% of the dish is made from products we have. Our strength is the dairy products, chicken, eggs, and based on these products, we begin to make the dishes. We also surround ourselves with other types of artisans, and this is where other communities come in, not only the farm community, but also the store and the restaurant. Then we start working with the whole community of Guatemala that has good artisan products. 
We have people who contribute to letters to us, for example, and we make connection with these producers that give us their product. The point is to collaborate with artisans who have the same philosophy that we have. And tell me, what is the importance of livestock raising to maintain the biodiversity and life on the farm? I realized that in the end, we have the perfect machine to be able to make the soil better and our perfect machine is a cow. They eat grass, they eat tree leaves and they really convert it into milk. Let's see where the human being with all the intelligence they can make of this type of machine. And that's where we began to realize that thanks to the manure that the cows are leaving us, we are totally regenerating the soil. It is still difficult for us to be economically sustainable because it has been five years since we started to understand the system and we're still lacking. With the cow manure and the compost, we are regenerating ourselves. We are realizing that we don't need that kind of money for irrigation and fertilization. We're, we're making the farm more efficient in terms of the number of animals that we can have and milk production. When we regenerate the soil, we can conserve 30% more moisture and withstand summers way better than we did five years ago. It has been demonstrated that in the end, the cow, if you have a silvopastoral system with rotational grazing, uh, there is biodiversity and we are returning to respect the environment as part of what we are of the planet. We are not the most important thing, but part. And in the end, we are making a harmony where we are finding the balance. However, we have learned from the economic side that if we do not regenerate the soil, we will never be competitive. So I think that this type of agriculture and this knowledge are the only ones that farmers are going to have to start using in order to be sustainable as small or medium-sized enterprises. Thank you. And yeah, like uh, there is no option right now. We only really need to just do it. And that's how El Mercadito Lola is doing in Guatemala and is starting in the community. So um, tell me, why is it important to keep this connection present to improve our urban areas? Well, um, the capacity of education is only in the urban area. It hurts me to say it very much. We have to give knowledge and this is what the knowledge of eating was lost, what the food that nourishes. That is the point, and the point is that we do not realize that the diseases that we have now, modern diseases, are because of what we eat. And this is why this connection between the urban and rural areas is important. I am doing my best, but it's a niche that it's too small, too small to be true. We are not going to move forward if they take away the knowledge that we can feed ourselves from our lands that are excellent. Food is made in the rural area. And with all due respect to the urban one, they should really train to understand and make people aware that they should appreciate us, the farmers, more. And that this is my point. They don't appreciate us. They don't appreciate the peasantry nor the farmer. They prefer to spend on many other things, but they don't see us in a good light, the farmer, the peasant. And that's a very conscious issue. Thank you, Lola. That's uh, really true and really powerful what you're saying. Uh, we sometimes just see our food in the grocery store and we don't think more about it, right? Where it comes and how much effort has been put on it. So it's really true. So finally, 
Any advice for the consumer population to continue supporting alternative economies that take care of the biodiversity like yours? I have really been learning a lot these five years. My advice is that one on the farm you learn and with nature you learn that you don't control anything. One day if it rains and there is wind and everything falls apart. Diseases are living animals. They are on the up and up and you have to learn to live with this. You have to learn to live with the pain because sometimes animals die and it's not like when your dog dies. My, my advice is to be aware. And it is that we do the possible thing to know our farmers, where we go to eat, that we can go and connect with the farmer on the rural thing. I hear a lot of people say, oh yes, let's plant trees. And how can I tell them that we're going to plant, but also to plant a tree is to go and care of it all the time. And a whole life behind the trees, not only like that, a, a connection has to be formed. And that's my advice. Even if it is only for one day, go and learn with an open mind to really connect with the microorganisms of, of the soil and understand that connection. Like when you go to see a magic play or you go with all your senses and you like the music, how they sing, the theme fills you up for that hour of being there and leaves you so much a play, the same as connecting with the farmer. My advice is that we don't think that we are so important, that we look for that harmony and really lower our ego in community again to learn from nature and to live with harmony with it. You have to think about what the difference is between intelligent human being and a wise human being. so happy to have Armando here with us representing the Indigenous Food Lab and talking to us a, a little bit about what is all this about and what are the projects that are coming for for this amazing amazing organization so uh, let's get started with this um, thank you Armando for taking the time to be here for taking the time to be with us and talk with us about this amazing amazing project and organization um, it's an honor for us to have um, such a great great project with us so um, let's get started with this okay Armando um, first I want you to tell us a little bit about the Indigenous Food Lab and your role in the organization, please. Sure. The Indigenous Food Lab, it's, I want to call it, it's the main project of the organization called Natives, which is North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, which is a nonprofit in which we are trying to promote indigenous food waste education and also talk and facilitate indigenous food access. And so in the, the indigenous food lab becomes our main project within the organization. And my role in it, I am the indigenous education director. So I am in charge of creating a new education and research program for the whole organization. I am curious, is the Indigenous Food Lab the first attempt of Indigenous food in Minneapolis area? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, indigenous foods have been around forever, you know, so we sometimes people think that Indigenous food 
have disappeared completely, but that's not the case. Indigenous foods have been around always. Uh, they've been pushed aside a little bit, but they've been around forever. Now, as an organization, I believe we are the first ones that we are focusing directly on talking and, and working directly with indigenous foods and indigenous food ways in general. But while we're starting our work, we are connecting with different um, Native American tribes and with different organizations and realizing that there are other efforts as well trying to do similar work and they are concerned about uh, the importance of indigenous foods in general. So it's a little bit difficult to call ourselves the first ones, but uh, I think we are one of the first attempts on trying to focus our work directly on indigenous food ways in general in, in this whole Minneapolis area. We're trying to promote indigenous food waste education. So we want to educate people about understanding what indigenous food ways are, what indigenous food ways mean, and, and how important those are. And we are hoping to, to bring more people together and to start talking about it and create more awareness about the importance of eating locally, eating indigenous foods, using indigenous ingredients in general. So, yeah, our hope is to reach out to as many people as possible. And of course, uh, Native American tribes to, to continue in this conversation. We know that the selection of the ingredients is significant for the indigenous food lab. Can you tell us more about what this role takes in the colonizing the kitchen? Well, sure. As part of our organization, one of our, uh, our goals, if you want, it's also to decolonize our kitchens. So as part of the, the, the program of the Indigenous Food Lab, we are trying to decolonize the whole process. And for that, uh, one of the things that means is that, for instance, the Indigenous Food Lab right now, the kitchen that it's running there, uh, doesn't use any wheat products. We also don't use any dairy products. And we are also moving away from using different uh types of protein. So we don't use conventional beef or chicken. We are using different sources that are more local, more traditional, more indigenous to these areas, you know. So we are using different types of flowers from different beans and, and, and nuts. And like the chefs we have right now at Indigenous Food Lab, they are sometimes like working on this uh creating new ways of using products and innovating things and experimenting with animal fats and stuff like that to, to replace the use of butter and other stuff like that, you know, in, in more traditional ways. Yeah, so it is it is a very important component of our work, like to take it very seriously, what it means to talk about indigenous food ways, you know. So when we talk about indigenous foods, we have to go back to pre-colonial times and rediscover in a way all the, the things that have been in use during those times. And that's why my role as an, uh, the education director and research, we are focusing on that. We're trying to document all this information, create a program of research to document a lot of the information from Native American tribes to to be able to use them. And, and as I said, or are the, the chefs in the Indigenous Food Lab, they are like recreating all of these uh, products that have been in use in the past and now we are using them again. And so far it's been really successful and it's actually a, a fun thing to see, you know, how there are many products that we can use instead of relying on the most uh, conventional wheat and dairy products in general. That is totally true because uh, those things came to our um, cultures and those things 
don't belong to us at all, even if they are already so common. And um, the indigenous food lab supports biodiversity in many, many areas, but the selection of no conventional meats is one that fascinates me a lot. And I want you to tell us a little bit more about this. Why is so important? Sure. And again, it goes back to the idea of decolonizing the kitchen, you know, like and focusing on indigenous uh, food and focusing on indigenous knowledge uh, that it's been around for millennia. So as part of that, we've been uh, talking to Native American tribes. Uh, we're doing some research on our own as well and documenting information and realizing that there are many products that we can use that are not relying on the more colonial uh, products. And as part of that, we don't use uh, beef or chicken, for instance. Instead, we use uh, duck. We've been using turkey. And also, we are focusing a lot on the use of bison uh, whenever it's possible. And obviously, all of these are sourced from sourced locally because all those animal products are grown in this area in North America in general. So it's easy to access. And a lot of uh, the, the producers that we're working on, they are also in, uh, indigenous or Native Americans. And so it, it's a whole chain, you know, it's not just trying to use the indigenous products, but it's also supporting indigenous producers that are working with these products. So it's, it's, working locally, working in a more holistic approach to foods in general, you know, thinking about the foods as medicines and, and, and the spiritual connection that uh, some of the tribes have with these animals and all of that stuff as well, we have to consider. And it's a very important part of what indigenous foodways really are. And so for us, using these products doesn't mean just to, to decolonize the, the kitchen, but it's also like reinforcing the traditions of the, the local tribes, reinforcing the connection with our local environments. You know, that's why using duck, using turkey, using bison are really relevant for us because it's recreating this connection that we have traditionally with our lands. Over 90 or 95% of the products that we're using right now in the Indigenous Food Lab are indigenous ingredients. And that means that we're working on things that are locally. We're working with ingredients that you can see around walking on the streets. You know, you can walk around Minneapolis and see, for instance, cedar. Uh, cedar is something so common, and we are uh, working with using cedar in many ways. So a lot of the ingredients and things that we use are really, really local, are really indigenous. And, and we are, as I said, as part of the education program also, we are trying to document and create education materials to to share all this information with everybody who is interested in this you know so we want to share about the importance of these ingredients which ones are those ingredients and what which ones are of the plants that sometimes you see in your block or you see in your parks or whatever in the city are actually foods you know like it's it's recreating this connection with our environment and understanding and learning about our own environments For now, the indigenous lab is not working as a restaurant, and I want to, I want all to know that. But I know that are other projects going on in the kitchen. And can you explain us what is the lab doing at this moment? 
Sure, of course. And and I can tell you that uh, the Indigenous Food Lab, as you said, it's not working as a restaurant. And the idea for the Indigenous Food Lab is not to work as a restaurant. So I don't think it's ever going to become a proper restaurant. Our main goal with Indigenous Food Lab is to have it as an education and training center that will serve, as I said, as, as the heart, as the main project of the Natives organization in order to, to support the training of uh, and educating people about indigenous foods in general and hopefully creating a, a very intense program of uh, training uh, local chefs and everything in, in the managing and using of indigenous ingredients. But for now, what uh, obviously with, with the pandemic and everything, it's been very difficult to do a lot of stuff, as you know. But uh, the Indigenous Food Lab right now, it's working, it's running, the kitchen is running. We have a lot of staff there that are working every day. And what we're doing right now is we are producing a lot of food that is distributed to Native uh, elder communities. We have some agreements with, with uh, different organizations and we are producing about a thousand meals a day that are all produced based with indigenous ingredients. And then they are frozen and they're sent once a week to these indigenous uh, elder communities for them to, to have access to food and not access to just food, but access to healthy food, local food, meaningful food, you know, like food that it's relevant to the land. It's relevant to who they are as, as uh, Native Americans and the food that they can connect and they can feel happy about. So yeah, right now it, the kitchen is running and it's working nonstop producing all these uh, foods and the chefs are also developing new recipes with all the indigenous ingredients that we have. So it's a whole process. It's a very uh, complex but wonderful process in which they are coming up with new recipes and, and creating these uh, delicious meals every day. And like I said, it's about a thousand meals a day that we're producing. And so it is a very busy <laughs> place right now. It is. It is. Oh my God. 1,000. 1,000. It's a lot. And all this project cannot be possible without the work of many people and especially your volunteers program that the Indigenous Food Lab has there, which is very, very amazing. I had the opportunity to be there and just to volunteer with the Indigenous Food Lab and in the kitchen. You can naturally feel the sense of being in a kitchen that tries all these efforts of being local, of being um, eco-sustainable, or being very, very cultural effort. For example, the kitchen has um, most of the things that you can uh, say in the indigenous language, and all the things in the kitchen are translated to the indigenous language. The cooking procedures are also not 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 usual cooking methods, which is very very special and. I have a question. What happens after the food is given to the people in need? Are there any following procedures? Well, yes. Uh, the, the idea is not to just distribute a bunch of food and that's it. You know, We are trying to generate this, as I mentioned before, generate this connection with the food. So we want to create awareness for the people that are not just receiving nice and healthy and yummy food, but also they are learning about it. They are creating a, a, a connection with it, you know, and there is a way that they can keep interacting with it. So as part of that, 
uh, one of the things that we're doing right now, it's like every week when we send in these meals, we are also sending some information that accompanies the food. That it's basic information, uh, talking a little bit about some of the ingredients that uh, have been used in their recipes that they're eating, but also some information about general concepts also, if you want, about food ways, about food sovereignty and the importance of these things, start, how to start building awareness about uh, thinking of local foods, thinking about indigenous foods in general and the importance of it. We are also developing a booklet that is going to include all the recipes that they've been receiving all these weeks. And and the recipes are explained in a very simple manner, in a simple way, you know, in a friendly, easy way to, to be able to recreate them. So after eating all these delicious foods, all this healthy food and all this culturally relevant food, you can actually make them. You can actually prepare them. You know how to you, we recreate all the, the recipes for them, you know. And, and as much as possible, we are also working with language, of course. So English is like the main, main language, obviously. But also we are trying to translate at least little parts of it. And as much as possible, our, one of our main goals as an organization is try to work towards uh, translating all the things we're doing to the local languages. In this area, especially, we're talking about Dakota and Anishinaabe, and we are working, we have people that work, uh, that help us uh, translating and, and creating these uh, recipes and, and the names of each ingredient and everything. It's a huge process that we have to go through, but it's it's something really relevant because it, it shows the relevance of indigenous foods, you know, and it shows the how serious we are taking this, that we want to make sure that people are learning about their foods, but also learning in their own language about their foods, because that's an important way, an easier way to create a connection with your foods as well. Totally agree. Now, I have a question for the people that maybe want to support more indigenous brands, indigenous business. Uh, if someone asks or if someone wants to buy products from indigenous brands, is the indigenous food lab a good place to ask for that? Are there any indigenous business associated with the indigenous food lab? Well, at this moment, since we are a, a fairly new organization, uh, we are developing, we are creating more connections, we are creating more collaboration with other organizations, with other indigenous uh, groups and, and Native American tribes and producers and all of that. But right now, at the moment, we are not selling or anything like that, you know, because also we are a nonprofit organization. So we want to try to create this connection with other local producers, local tribes, and offer them a space where they can sell their products through us. But if people is interested right now, of course, they can contact us. They can visit our website, natives.org, or directly visit us in the Indigenous Food Lab. There's always people there, obviously, maintaining the social distancing and all of that, because, as I said, we are working on it. There's people working every day preparing those meals, but uh, we have this, uh, as you well know, these uh, volunteers coming to help us packing the foods and all of that so people can sign up for it and learn more about the work we're doing and also learn about the connections we are creating with other organizations, other groups. And again, if you visit our website, you can send us an email to us and we are more than happy to connect anybody who's interested, uh, connect them with other local organizations and local producers and Native American producers and, and other groups that are interested in, 
and working with uh, indigenous foods in general. Thank you so much, Armando, for your time. Um, thank you so much for this conversation as well. reminder that you can support the Sfin podcast and have access to extra material by becoming a Slow Food Youth Network patron on patreon.com slash join slash Slow Food Youth Network. I'm so happy to present to you guys Andrea Pieroni, the Dean of the University of Gastronomic Science. He will join us in this conversation with a very important point of view. a little bit about you and your work. I am Andrea Pieroni. I am an ethnobotanist. I am a professor of ethnobiology here at the University of Pollenzo. What is the importance of ethnobotany and gastronomy? Ethnobotany is the science studying the complex relationships between humans and societies. And of course, we can say that uh, is old as uh, the first humans, they inhabited the planet because uh, every human in the planet has an exposure and has built relationships to the plant kingdoms, both in terms of species and also in terms of ecosystems. Of course, for the gastronomy, The issue is extremely relevant because most of the taste we have in the world, taste of dishes, comes from plant ingredients and comes from specific constituents of plants' ingredients. They have taste and smell called secondary metabolites. The ethnobotany is the science studying then an old story, the story of the interaction between humans and plants is about traditional knowledge. What is traditional knowledge? Traditional knowledge is the core business of the ethnobotany and also the core business of many intuitions slow food developed in studying the gastronomies. The idea that uh, knowledge which has been uh, transmitted mainly orally and uh, mainly retained by local communities mainly retained by non-official actors of the knowledge, is crucial for shaping practices of gathering plants, of cultivating plants, of transforming plants, of uh, producing beautiful artisanal products and also beautiful dishes. The traditional knowledge, however, is very different from the scientific knowledge. Traditional knowledge is not only knowledge, is embedded into practices, is strongly connected to the empirical daily life, and it includes also beliefs and language. Traditional knowledge is not only traditional. In the way we may understand sometimes nowadays this term, is not static, but is highly dynamic and is the result of a continuous coevolution that the local communities and the natural environments um, had 
in exchanging and in uh, um, fostering uh, for centuries uh, uh, relations and exchanges. The most iconic example of how traditional knowledge is dynamic is probably the most iconic dish of the Italian cuisine, spaghetti with tomato sauce. Spaghetti are surely non-native in Italy, possibly arrived as Massimo Montanari teach us from uh, uh, the Arabs and of course from the Near East. It's a direct consequence of the discovery of agriculture in the Fertile Crescent. And of course, tomatoes came from the new continent. So the Italianness in this dish is not in the ingredients, but in the way these two things are put together. So the Italianness in the, is in the aesthetics. This shows that traditional knowledge is traditional in the way it's transmitted and is considered amicably part of the cultural heritage of the local communities, but is not static. And actually, this dynamism of the traditional knowledge is the best medicine and the best solution we can have also for the future and for the huge global and climate change we expect and we are still uh, um, living uh, at the moment. Why? Because in this dynamic of traditional knowledge, there is uh, some special energy which could forge also the adaptations that are needed in order to counteract the global change. Of course, not only adaptations are needed, we need also a lot of policies and serious policies, but local communities already are adapting to the climate change using their traditional knowledge and rearranging it. And that's why this is so important for fostering sustainability of the food system in the future and also food sovereignty. Why is traditional knowledge so important for food sovereignty? Food sovereignty is very linked to the, to the traditional knowledge system because local communities have the traditional knowledge in their hands. In other words, traditional knowledge is the way through which local communities can design, can practice, can produce, can enjoy their food system. And that's why we cannot foster food sovereignty in the world just ignoring traditional knowledge. Ethnobotany then is there to look specifically at traditional plant knowledge and the very complex around of this knowledge, which is not just identifying plants, perceiving plants, naming plants, using plants, transforming plants, but also enjoying plants. The sociability attached to traditional knowledge is part of the traditional knowledge. There are aesthetics there and there are also social systems there embedded into the traditional knowledge related to plants. This means landscape, this means what we call nowadays biocultural heritage. This means also um, rules. For example, the usi civici, the, um, the, the, the customary laws regulating the use of common goods are also part of the traditional knowledge. And that's why we need to study traditional knowledge and we need to study ethnobotany all over the world. Not just for the good sake of the scientist, 
but for enhancing the further coevolutions local communities have to have with their environments in an alliance that bring together scientists, local communities, environmentalists, and also, I would expect, foodies too. The science articulated by ethnobotany is very much on the line of what the European Commission drafts as the next challenge for the next decade, the citizen science. This means it's just not science for the advancement of the knowledge, but is the science for the advancement of the communities made together with the community and with the direct participation of the community. And this is, I think, extremely relevant and I would hope to see in the future much more ethnobiological research and research done together with the community. In, in one word, one of the very, um, um, let's say, crucial idea of slow food, which emerged more than 30 years ago, is not only still alive, but is also the skeleton of the next uh, um, generations of scientists. The idea that the science is not a fact, but is a process which is co-created with different actors. In this sense, when we see an old lady or even a mid-aged or even a young uh, gathers of wild vegetables nowadays, or a farmer rediscovering a local land race, we see the essence of uh, a continuous coevolution, and we see also a value which is well beyond the scientific value and well beyond also the biodiversity as we have intended it so far. Nowadays, we have to change this paradigm and pass from defending the biodiversity to defend the biocultural diversity. And in this sense, uh, these gather or these pharma are crucial in this effort. I sincerely hope that ethnobotany and ethnobiology will become the linchpin of further projects having the communities at the center and will also be able to escape the, I would say, sometimes pretty boring atmosphere of the academia and will be able to generate further seeds as the experience of slow food has well demonstrated in the past years. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dean Peroni, for your time. Um, I cannot be more glad with the importance of your message. We definitely cannot improve our gastronomies without understanding the importance of ethnobotanical studies. Really, really, thank you so much. 
I want to thank to all our guests that collaborated in this episode. Thank you, Lola, for sharing the difficulties of your work in a country like Guatemala. I want to thank to Armando Medina Selly and the Indigenous Food Lab team for encouraging more native knowledge in urban areas. And thank you, Andrea Pieroni, for your fantastic work at the university, which happens to be one of the cores of the slow food movement. Through this episode, We hear about the importance of sharing good, fair, and clean food, and also sharing the vital knowledge of why these changes are essential in our local gastronomies. We are all in different countries. We all share a common goal. Try to make our existence on this planet as harmless as possible. From businesses to ONGs and universities, Everyone can make a big difference within their local communities. Finishing this episode dedicated to urban lands, we can see how all ecosystems are interconnected to help each other. Without harmony among them, our favorite restaurants in our cities wouldn't be possible. If you, as a consumer, are listening to this, I dare you that every time you see your plate on the table, you see not only food, but all the ecosystems and forces moving together to make that happen. I encourage you, not only look for food, but for fair, clean and good food. Thank you so much, Anna, for creating this episode. Since today it's the last chapter of the series dedicated to Terra Madre, I would like to thank all the volunteers that supported the project. From the hosts of the episodes, Kumud, Sara, Melanie, Lapo and Anna, to all the guests that joined us. I would also like to thank Leonardo Prieto Dorantes for the music and sound editing and the musicians that provided us with incredible sounds and music. So thank you to Philip Kukulis, Fernanda Cabral, Agustin Fernandez, Paul Valdivia, the Acoustic Ecology Lab, Tres Rios and Sondia Key. If you want to support the podcast as well, you can become one of our patrons. Information is in the podcast description. I remind you that the website of Terra Madre is still online and it's full of interesting content around different food topics. So go have a look. I'll also add the link in the episode description. This is Valentina Gritti and you're listening to the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!